parents, I, I think all of our kids are out, just so you know, the Bible, the text that we're going to look at today is covers some adult subjects, um, and that's one of the, ch- the good things about preaching verse by verse through the Bible, is when we do that, we're going to cover everything. We're going to cover the, the easy stuff, easy, nothing's easy, right? And we're going to cover some of the more difficult subjects, and today we're going to see that. So I just want to give you fair warning. I don't think we have any little kids in the room, but if we do, this is going to be a kind of a PG-13 sermon today. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to Revelation chapter 2? We are in our fourth week now in our series, which we've entitled Reading Someone Else's Mail. And in this series, we are walking through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor that we find in the book of Revelation. So we began the series by looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus, and in that letter, we read about how this church had wins that Jesus celebrated, but they had one major failing, and that failing was that they had lost their love that they had at first. They had lost their love for Christ. The core of that message, the core of that letter was a call to return to your love for Christ, that that our love for Christ would be at the center of everything that we say and do. Then last week, the journey took us north, or the week after that, it it took us on a journey north uh, to to, um, Pergamum, and, and in Pergamum, uh, we found a city that, that was um, trying to fight off the temptations of compromise. That's what we saw last week. And today, as we travel, we're going to go 40 miles east out of Pergamum until the road veers to the southeast and brings us to a small city. It's, it's actually really more of a town named Thyatira. Now, unlike most of the other cities in these seven letters, Thyatira uh, was a small and, and fairly unimportant city, so we don't actually know a whole lot about it. Uh, What we do know is that it was a military garrison. It served as a first line of defense for Pergamum. And we also know that it was famous for its trade guilds. In the the book of Acts, you read about Lydia, who was the first convert in Asia for for Paul, and she had come from Thyatira. She was possibly one of the members of this trade guild. Uh, But some of the archaeology shows us that that there were inscriptions found in the ruins there uh, and that the guilds included all kinds of things. They had wool workers and linen workers and makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. You could think of these guilds kind of like modern-day trade unions, um, but there's, there's more of a religious aspect to them. And as we study the letter today, this will be important for us to keep in mind because that is going to impact some of their practices and how they, they are going about their life, and we'll see that play out in the letter. But in this relatively small city, this, this town that was on the road just about halfway between Pergamum and Sardis, there was a church, a small-town church. Anybody ever been to a small town church, right? It's a small town church and Jesus is going to write a letter to this small town church. Now we're not really sure how that church got there. We, we don't, like I said, know much about Thyatira. Most scholars suspect that some unknown missionary came and planted the church during, during Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus. Regardless, as we come to this letter in the book of Revelation, what we're coming to is a small town church that's been established for a while, and Jesus is going to speak to that church. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to go from verse 18 to verse 29. Listen to the words of Jesus as he writes this letter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who do not, do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray for just a minute? Father God, as we open up your word and we begin to examine your word to the church in Thyatira, God, I ask that you would arrest our hearts, that you would just seize us, and that as we study this this letter that you dictated to John to deliver to this small town church, that we would recognize that this is also a letter to this small town church that you would talk to us today, that you would have a word for us, that you would get me out of your way and so that you would speak to all of us in this room, even me, that we would be encouraged to walk out of here to live the mission that you have placed before us, to go into all the world and make disciples. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you in advance for what we know that you're about to do with us here in this room today. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. As as we've been reading through each of these letters, I've I've been pointing out that the beginning of each of these letters, uh, Jesus addresses the angel. That that word there is angelos. It means messenger. He's, He's speaking to the pastor, the elder of each of these churches. And after he does that, Jesus starts talking and and he takes part of john's description of jesus exalted and enthroned in heaven that we see in chapter one of revelation and he then applies it to himself and he's restating john's description to help emphasize an important reality about who he is and how that matters to each of these churches and today in this letter that we're looking at we see that again But there's a little bit of a difference as we just start looking at our text today. Because in this letter, Jesus adds a title, a reality that is not in Revelation chapter 1. Take a look with me starting at verse 18. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, as you read that, you might be tempted to to just pass over the fact that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God, and you'd be wrong to do that. We need to remember where this this was written, right? Put yourselves into the shoes of the church in Thyatira. They're living in this small city in the Roman province of Asia where Roman emperors regularly referred to themselves as sons of God, where the people worshipped the emperor as God. In fact, we actually have a letter from Augustus to Ephesus, and that letter begins with the phrase, Emperor Caesar, son of the god Julius. But more than that, in the city of Thyatira had a personal god that they worshipped. They believed that this god, whose name was Tyramnos, was the guardian of the city. And, and it was well known throughout Thyatira that Tyramnos was the son of the god Zeus. So the people of Thyatira are quite familiar with these little g gods who claim to be the sons of God. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm God. I'm the son of God. This is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where we see this phrase. And, and what we're seeing here is Jesus from the outset proclaiming his deity as he speaks to this church. And as soon as he says that, he then goes on and says that he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. And here we see Jesus repeating a portion of Revelation chapter 1. It's verses 14 through 15 if you were to flip back there. But, but as we see this description here, what I absolutely love is that if you were to flip back to your Old Testament and you were to go to the book of Daniel, you'd see that Daniel in the Old Testament saw Jesus. And and 
Listen to how he described him. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, Daniel describes his vision of the ancient of days. And just part of that description says that his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. John's doing something here on purpose. What, what, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is making it perfectly clear that he is the unchanging God of creation. Think about that. He's the same God who stood before Daniel 700 years before he stood before John. And now he's dictating this letter to Thyatira. In addition, uh, the, the description of eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze also tells us about the nature of the one who's speaking. When he says that his eyes are like a flaming fire, he's giving us a picture of his knowledge, his insight of what's going on inside the church. He, he's about to discuss some problems that this church has got um, and that, that are plaguing the church at Thyatira, and he's showing them that even before he calls them out, he sees them, he knows what's going on inside the church. And as he says that his feet are like burnished bronze, he's giving us a picture of his strength and his power. Now remember, I, I told you that, that bronze was one of the, the guilds that was going on in Thyatira. These people were familiar with the ways that bronze was used and its, its strength, its durability. And bronze was used kind of so we know in all sorts of ways. It was used primarily for building idols and statues and it was used for armor. Th- these idols were the, that the local people worshipped, they, they were probably made out of bronze. And the armor that the soldiers that were garrisoned in Thyatira wore was almost certainly made of bronze. These Christians would have understood this this imagery instantaneously. The one writing this letter is the true God, unlike those idols. He's the true God. And he has true strength and power. And that power exceeds like the armor that these soldiers were wearing. Jesus is describing himself in such a way to show that he is more powerful than idols and he's stronger than armor. And as we read this letter to the church in Thyatira, the the letter is going to spend a great deal of time talking about the problems in this church. But before Jesus goes there, he he does commend the church. He, He tells them, hey, there are some things that you're getting right. So let's take a look at that. Verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This was a church that knew how to love. They knew how to love. They had faith. They had served. They had endured. But what's most compelling to me as I read this, what's most kind of encouraging to me as I read this description right here of this church is that they were growing. They were doing well. It says that their works now, in the present, in the reality of where they're at, were bigger than, they were better than they were at first. What we're seeing right here is that this church has the exact opposite problem as the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, they'd lost their love. This church was growing in their love. But they do have a problem. And as we move from verse 19 to verse 20, I want you to see that drift can happen to anyone. You see, this church was doing well. They were were actually growing as Christians. But in verse 20, Jesus calls them out for their drift, for their drift into tolerance. He says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This church had been doing so well, but now it's drifting off course. And before we talk about this, what this woman was teaching, we we need to consider how they got there. That's kind of an application for us. How did this church get there? Because I promise you, a church that's doing as well as it was doing over in verse 19 doesn't just fall headfirst into sin overnight. It's not like a snap of the fingers. You know, when I was in flight school, going, learning how to navigate aircraft, one of the first rules that they teach us, one of the first things they teach us about navigation is called the rule of 60. 
I'm going to explain it to you. It's fairly simple, but the idea is that for every one degree that you are off course, after you travel 60 miles, you will be one mile off of course. Basically, the rule of 60 says that if you change course by one degree, you're going to lose a, a mile in 60 miles. Now, that doesn't sound that bad, right? Like if I'm flying, right, and I'm up at 30,000 feet and I'm headed to an airport 60 miles away and I miss it by, a bot, by one mile, no big deal. I look down and I can say, oh, there's the airport. I'm there, right? Not a big deal. But that's not how it works. You see, because you don't, you don't go to an airport, you don't fly to an airport that's just 60 miles away. Right? So um, as you go, as you travel, as that distance grows greater, your deviation grows with it. So let's change the, the problem just a little bit. One degree off if I was traveling from Atlanta to Tokyo, and I'm just one degree off course, I'm going to miss Tokyo International by 114 miles. That's a big deal. That's one degree. Imagine if I'm five degrees off course. Right? Okay, so this is roughly 90 degrees. That's 45. That's 15. That's 5. That's 1. If I'm 5 degrees off course, I'm going to miss Tokyo International by 600 miles. That's why they call it drift. Because it, it, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It grows. And, and most of the time, you don't even notice. You don't even notice that you're off course until you miss your target by 600 miles. And it's the same thing with the church. It's exactly the same thing. This church didn't jump headlong into sin. They, they slowly drifted into it. They let tolerance of false teachings drag them into sin. And now, in this letter, Jesus is calling them out. So as we return to verse 20, I... I I think it's helpful to know that the Greek word translated tolerate, aphiomi, is, is an interesting word because it literally means to leave, to, to forgive, to permit. And as we look at that, we can see that what's going on here is that this self-styled prophetess was being allowed into the body, into the church. Jesus refers to her as that woman Jezebel. You guys remember Jezebel, right, from the Old Testament if you were to look at First and Second Kings, you could read all about her. Um, Jezebel was the queen of Israel during the divided kingdom. Her husband, King Ahab, was the seventh king of Israel after the kingdom divided into Israel and Judah. And in a political arrangement, he married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. First Kings 16.31 records the marriage. It says of Ahab, and as if it was not or as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. I, I love that. Like, I have an imagination, so when I'm reading that, that almost feels like sarcasm, right? It's like, as if it wasn't a big enough deal that this dude was following in the sins of the first king of Israel who divided the kingdom that God had established. As if it wasn't just enough that he was doing that, this dude married Jezebel, right? Do you, do you see that there? She was a bad, like notoriously bad woman. She was evil. She compromised the monarchy of Israel. She was complicit in the murder of the prophets. In fact, throughout the narratives of First and Second Kings, we see that Jezebel is an incredibly wicked woman who persuaded her husband and others to rebel and commit evil deeds. She was bad, so bad, in fact, that I don't know of a single person named Jezebel today. Do you? Anybody know a Jezebel? No, she's kind of in that category with Hitler, right? Like, we don't see a whole lot of little Adolfs running around anymore, do we? Right? That's how bad she is. And here in Revelation, that's how Jesus refers to this woman. Now, most scholars agree that they don't think that her name was actually Jezebel, but they do believe it was an actual woman. The, the simple reality is that no Jew would have named their daughter Jezebel knowing Israel's history. They just would not have done it. But Jesus absolutely is comparing this woman to her, to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And it's almost like the language here is, is like Jesus is saying uh, about this woman, that Jezebel of a woman, 
right? Because we've heard a phrase like that, right? That Jezebel of a woman. That's reinforced as Jesus spells out the sins that she is perpetuating. First, she calls herself a prophetess, but she's leading the church into sin. She isn't actually teaching or proclaiming the things of God, and this is huge. Because you don't get to stand up here on a stage like this and teach God's people to sin. You don't get to lead the flock of God into sin. This is why as a Christian and as your pastor, I am so passionately against false teachers. We've got a lot of them in America. We need to know the truth and we need to stand against them. It's why I'm willing to have the hard conversations and I've had them and it gets awkward. I'm not going to lie. It gets awkward, especially if the person is a young Christian or someone who's not a Christian and they're following this false teaching and you have to have that conversation to point to them. Hey, that is false teaching. Let me show you the truth. But it's why I'm willing to do it because this is serious. But, but as we look at Jesus' condemnation, it's not just that this false teacher, this, this false prophetess is leading these Christians into sin. She's leading them into some of the most destructive forms of sin. Here in verse 20, Jesus says that she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. At the most basic level, on the surface, what we're likely seeing here is that this false teacher in the church is encouraging participation in the religious experiences of the trade guilds that were so prevalent in Thyatira. New Testament theologian Leon Morris commented on this, that the powerful trade guilds in this city would have made it very difficult for any Christian earning a living without belonging to a guild. But... Membership involved attendance at guild banquets, and this in turn meant eating meat, which had been first sacrificed to an idol. And these meals all too readily degenerated into sexual looseness. And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? Think about where the church was. That makes sense. How did they end up where they're at right here? Drift. Drift. Maybe it started with this false teacher saying, hey, it's okay to be part of these trade guilds. After all, you've got to earn a living, right? And then, and then after a little bit of time, she says, hey, it's okay to go to those banquets. It's just a party. But after a little bit more time, before they even know it, these Christians have fallen headfirst into the perversion of idol worship in the world that it just takes over the world that they're in and they're, they're just falling into it. You see, drift really can happen to anyone, even you and me. I mentioned a minute ago that, that Jezebel, this self-proclaimed prophetess, was leading these Christians into some of the most destructive sins. And I want to take a minute to flesh that out because while all sin is sin in God's eyes, and while all sin earns the unrestrained wrath of God apart from the grace we find in Jesus, while there are consequences for all sin, there are some categories of sin that seem to bring about destruction, more destruction, more pain, more heartache here on earth than others. And the two categories of sin that we see here in our text are in that camp. Jesus says that this woman is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Now, now what exactly that looks like isn't spelled out here in our text. The, the Greek word pornuo there is the active form of pornia, which is the word from which we get pornography and fornication. It literally means um, to, to engage with a prostitute. Strictly defined, though, porn, porneo, it, it means to engage in illicit sex, to fornicate, to become, or to join with a prostitute. And it's that type of behavior that these church members have been led into. It's that type of behavior that these church members are engaging in. It's that type of behavior that Jesus is calling out and condemning. And in 2020, I think it's an area where we Christians have to be on guard. We have to be aware of this because we are susceptible to drift here because we are living in a sexualized society. 
Now listen, I believe that sex is a good gift from God inside the confines of what it was created for. And I think the best way as we talk about this is to think about sex like a fire, okay? A, a, a fire can be a good thing, right? It's been cold out light, lately. Is, is there anything better than curling up next to a fireplace with a roaring fire and a good book? I don't think that there is. I don't think there is. A, a fire can be a useful thing. It can provide warmth. It can provide light. It can be used to cook your food. It can be used to forge tools. Fire, when it's in the right place, is a good thing. But it's only a good thing when it's where it's meant to be. We used to live out in California, and when we were out in California, we loved going camping up in the Sequoia National Park. It is awesome. I think some of my favorite memories of camping, ones that I'm going to treasure for the rest of my life, were up camping in the Sequoias. And, and one of my favorite things to do when we were up there was to have a campfire, and after the girls had gone to bed, we'd smoked the, or roasted the marshmallows over the fire. After the girls had gone to bed, I'd sit there beside the fire late into the night just reading good books by the light of the fire. It was awesome. But up in the mountains, e- even when it's over 100 degrees and you're able to get that cool night with 100 degrees down in the valley and you're up at 6,000 feet, you get that cool night and you're having that fire. Up in the mountains when you're having that fire, there are very strict rules about having a campfire. You see, the sequoias had, had these rules. You were only allowed to have a fire inside the fire ring. Right? That steel ring in the campground was the only place you could have a campfire. You always had to have a sober adult, and they emphasized sober, a sober adult within five feet of the fire ring. Five feet! You always had to have a bucket full of water next to the fire ring. And before you went to bed, you had to completely extinguish the fire to the point where you couldn't have glowing coals in the fire ring. Now, why did they do that? They did that because the sequoias had been in the midst of a 10-year drought. That whole forest was a tinderbox waiting to go up in flames. In fact, at times in the summer, they just you couldn't have a fire. That's how, how dangerous it was. And they knew that if the fire got out of that fire ring, the whole forest would go up in flames. Thousands upon thousands of animals would die. They'd lose their habitat. Homes would be burned down. Lives, human lives would be lost. Fire outside of where it is supposed to be is incredibly destructive. You guys have been seeing in the news the fires out in Australia and all the damage that that's done, all the animals, all the homes, all the lives that have been lost because of fire that was outside of where it was supposed to be. And it's the same way with sex. God created sex as a good gift to be experienced within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman who are covenanted to each other and to God for life. And I can't tell you how many times I have personally witnessed the devastation that's caused by sexual sin. Lives ruined, families destroyed, careers ended, churches devastated. And here's the part that is, to me, most upsetting. It's that often the havoc that sexual sin causes It extends far beyond the people who are engaging in the sin. When two people engage in in a sexual relationship outside the confines of of marriage where where there's this bond that occurs, and when that bond is created and then broken over and over and over again through promiscuous activity, through these casual intimate encounters, there are psychological changes that happen in your brain that will affect your future marriage relationship. When a husband or a wife commits adultery, it impacts them, yes, but it also impacts their spouse and their kids and their extended family. When someone sexually assaults another person, they violate them in a way that can be crippling for the rest of their lives. When an individual looks at pornography, 
to say nothing of the fact that that person that they're looking at on that screen is an image bearer of God, created in his image for his glory, to say nothing of the fact that you've taken this person who God created, who God loves, and turned them into an object for your satisfaction, for your pleasure, to say nothing of the fact of that. And that makes me angry, but to say nothing of that when someone looks at pornography it permanently changes their brain. When an individual looks at pornography, I, I saw a study in the Journal of the Witherspoon Institute this last week, and that talked about how looking at pornography changes your brain. It explained how that works by saying, and I'm just going to quote the journal here, think of the brain as a forest where trails are worn down by hikers who walk along the same path over and over again. Day after day, the exposure to pornographic images creates similar neural pathways that, over time, become more and more well-paved as they are repeatedly traveled with each exposure to pornography. Those neurological pathways eventually become the trail in the brain's forest by which sexual interactions are routed. Thus, a pornography user has unknowingly created a neurological circuit that makes his or her default perspective towards sexual matters ruled by the norms and expectations of pornography. It changes your brain. Think about that. Looking at porn perverts the good gift of sex that God has given in a way that continues long after that screen is turned off. The simple reality is that sexual sin is devastating, which is why I believe that God takes it so seriously. And listen, before we move on in our text, before we go any further, if any of these categories, any of these, these areas that I've talked about on any side of what I've talked about are you, you need to know if, if that sin is you, you need to know that there is grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. There's no sin that's some unpardonable sin that Jesus says, nope, sorry, you've gone too far, you're done. There's grace and forgiveness, but on the flip side of that, if you've been the victim of any of this abuse, I want you to know that there's grace and healing for you and Jesus too. And we, as a church, me, as your pastor, we want to help lead you into that. You don't have to, you shouldn't suffer in silence. There's healing available. So if, if, if that's you, come, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our, our ladies or one of our elders. We want to help you through that. But, but as we move on, the other major failing in this church is, is that they are being taught to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. This isn't just that they're eating. Their eating is tied up in worship. The, these Christians are worshiping other gods, and this too is destructive. At its foundation, idolatry leads people away from God. That's destructive in and of itself. But as you consider it further, you'll begin to realize that the consequences of idolatry, they, they grow exponentially. When we walk away from the way that God has ordained for us to live, to worship, everything changes. Who we worship affects how we live. You hear me on that? Who we worship affects how we live. And when we begin to worship idols, and what are our modern idols? Because I don't think any of us have a statue in our house that we're bowing down to on Saturday evening, right? None of us have that. There are people in America that do, but not us. So what are the idols that we worship? Money, success, pleasure, status. You, you name it when it comes to worshiping these things, and we do. Don't give yourself a pass here. We do. Everything becomes... To, comes and, and it comes into service of those idols. We prioritize those things that we worship at the expense of everything else. We prioritize our job at the expense of our spouse and our kids. And we'll justify it by saying things like, hey, I've got to earn a check so that I can provide all these things and all this stuff for my kids. 
Listen to me. Your kids don't need that stuff. What your kids need are mom and dad with them, spending time with them. It's so much more important. I can't tell you how many college-level college pastors I've met. They, they meet kids all the time that have the nice car and all the toys and all that stuff, and their life is a train wreck. They don't need the stuff. They need dad. They need mom in their lives. We prioritize pleasure and status at the expense of relationships. We seek out pleasure and status, and when we do, people become a means to an end. We use people because of what they can get us, and what happens when that occurs is that relationships fall victim to necessity. And what happens when something gets in the way of one of your idols? You get angry. You get mad. You lash out. Who we worship affects how we live. It affects our family. It affects our communities. It affects our church. And here's the thing that that we have got to grasp today. It was never meant to be that way. Which is why God takes it so seriously. This woman, this this Jezebel is teaching. She's, She's leading the church into sin. And the church is tolerating this sin. And as we move forward, I want you to see that Jesus is leading us to remember the consequences of sin. Look with me, verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. As we consider this here and we see Jesus say, see, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. It's clear that Jesus has in some form or fashion given this woman the opportunity uh, to come away from her sin. But she hasn't. Now we don't know how that happened. Maybe it was a faithful member of the church that's coming and saying to her, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It, it goes against what God is teaching us. Come back. Maybe that's what it was. We don't know. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit convicting her of her sin. Either way, she has refused to repent. And here, I think, is one of the most important things that we we need to walk away with today as we look at this text. When you think about compromise, when you think about the tolerance of sin, eventually, you go so far that you've completely walked away from Jesus. Because the reality is, if you belong to Jesus, you repent of sin. If you refuse to repent, then you don't belong to Jesus. You're not a Christian. I'm sorry. Maybe that's a little blunt, but that's the case. If you are always refusing to repent of your sin, then you don't belong to Jesus. So this woman is refusing to repent of her sin And the consequences are severe. Jesus says in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And before we go any further, but before we talk about how Jesus is going to deal with this this woman, I, I want you to see that once again, what we see here is Jesus calling people in the church to repentance. And the fact that we established a minute ago, it still holds true. If you are in the church, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you belong to Christ and you're confronted with your sin, you'll repent. And if you don't, if you're not, then you won't. And for those who don't repent, the consequences are severe. She'll be thrown into a sickbed. And here, there's kind of a play on words going on in the Greek. As we, as we look at this text, it kind of shows us that the punishment fits the crime. The word for sickbed there is clean A. It, it can refer literally to a bed, or it can refer to a dining couch where, where you would eat a meal. And so a lot of scholars argue that the bed that Jesus is talking about here is like a funeral buyer bed. 
And, and what, they're, what they're saying is that the idea here is that where this woman has defiled the marriage bed with her immorality, Jesus is going to strike her down on a funeral byre. She's going to lose her life. Other scholars argue that, that where she has defiled herself in idolatry by eating and worshiping these idols, she's going to be struck down while she's dining. The point, regardless of which route you want to take, which interpretation you take there, is that severe punishment awaits her sin. And it awaits those other Christian members who follow her. That's that's what's meant by those who commit adultery with her. That's what's meant by those who are called her children. Their punishment will be just as severe. God takes sin seriously. And I think that there are a lot of Christians in the church today that don't believe that. I think that we have just gotten so just used to sin that we've forgotten that God takes it seriously. He did it with those people in the church in Thyatira, and he does it with us too. We can't forget that. It's easy for us to look back on the church at Thyatira and say, hey, these guys are a hot mess. Of course God is going to punish them. Of course, of course God's going to deal with that sin. And we forget that, that Jesus is looking at us with those same eyes like fire. The same Jesus who appeared before Daniel 700 years later appeared before john and two thousand years later he's talking to us and he's looking at us apart from christ our sin will bring about god's unrestrained wrath on our lives we have to understand that that's one of the consequences of sin but as we look at this text there's another one In the second half of verse 23, we see that there is a second consequence of sin. Jesus says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Do you see it there? As as we're looking at that, he's saying, They're going to know that I am God. Jesus is glorified as a consequence of our sin. What what do you mean by that, Josh? Here, the the reality, it's fairly simple. We were created to glorify God. Every single person on earth was created to glorify God. And every single person on earth will glorify God. You will either glorify God in worship and praise as you thank him and worship him for the love and grace that we find in Jesus. Or you will glorify God when you suffer the just punishment of your sin, your rebellion against him. Everyone will glorify God. But as we move into the remainder of this letter, I want you to see that where sin binds you down, where sin ties your hands, where it burdens you, where where sin brings about severe punishment, I want you to see that there is freedom in Jesus and that Jesus is here calling us to live in his freedom. He's calling us to live in the freedom of Jesus. Take a look with me to verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus says that he doesn't lay on them any other burden. So if like, you're like me and you're, you're reading this, you might want to ask, what, what burden? What's the burden that they do? There's another burden. There must be a burden that they've got right now. What's that burden? Great question. So glad you asked. I think that the burden they have to bear is that they have been tolerating this false teacher in the church when they shouldn't have. I think that's the burden. I think that the burden is, is there because of their tolerance, their church's harmony, their, their church's unity has been destroyed, their church is going through terrible times and it's going to get worse, all because they didn't expel this woman from their midst, all because they didn't protect the flock. 
I mean, think about it on like a practical level. If you're, you're there in the church at Thyatira, don't you suppose like some of these people that are in the church, they're your friends. Maybe they're family members. They're, they're people that you know. They're people that you've been serving and, and growing with. And those people, they're about to go through some really bad times. They're going to go through some tribulation. They're going to experience the results of their sin. Some of them may die. Some of them, they're going to be thrown into a sickbed. That's a burden to bear because it all could have been avoided. That's why church discipline is so important. We don't like to talk about that in 2020 in America, right? We don't like to talk about church discipline. As a church, we have a responsibility to protect the flock of God from wolves. That's my responsibility as your pastor. That's Miles and Ricky's responsibility as your deacons. And it's every other member of this church's responsibility. As Christians, we are commanded to build each other up in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. In Hebrews 10.25, we're commanded to spur each other on to love and good works. In Galatians 6.1, we're commanded to help our fellow Christians who are caught in sin. As a church, we have a responsibility to care for the flock of God. It is not just my job. I can't do that by myself. It's a group effort. And Jesus outlined what that looks like in Matthew chapter 18. We're not going to go there today. I, I encourage you to read that. Church discipline. As sore as a subject as it is, as much as I don't like having to deal with it or go through it, and I have, and it is not fun. It's the worst thing I've ever had to do in church. I'd, I'd rather go to a funeral. I really would. But it is a responsibility that each of us as members of the church must carry. And we must carry it faithfully. But that said, beyond the burden induced by their tolerance of sin, Jesus says there is no other burden. There's only freedom. We have to remember that. He says, cling to what you have. Cling to the gospel. Cling to your works and your love and your faith and your in endurance. Following Jesus was never meant to be hard. It was never meant to be something where, where you just weren't able to do it. It wasn't supposed to be burdensome. It was supposed to be light. Jesus says, come, take my yoke upon you. Why does he say that? Because he's going to walk there with us, helping us to do it as we go. Following Jesus was never meant to be burdensome, but sin is burdensome. Sin drags us down. There's freedom in Christ, and, and Jesus is calling his church and that includes us to live in that freedom. And when we live in that freedom, Jesus says we will find reward. This is my favorite part of this whole letter. Like, like I'm excited. Y'all ready for this? Okay. Verse 26. The one who conquers. You'll remember, we've seen this in every one of the letters. We're going to see them in all that follow as well. But the one who conquers, that's a promise for those who endure, for those who remain faithful, who, who go through all the trials, all the temptation, all the suffering that, that this church is going through. He says, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That sounds like a promise, right? What's that mean? Great question. You guys are asking good questions today. Here, Jesus is echoing Psalm chapter 2. Or, yeah, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, if you don't know, is one of the most prominent messianic psalms. It's a psalm that promises that a Messiah is going to come to fix this sin problem that we've been having. It was recognized as a messianic song, psalm long, long before the church in Thyatira was established. And here, 
what we see is Jesus giving to the, the same authority to those who conquer, to those who endure, to those who live out faithfulness to Christ. He's giving that same authority that he was given by the Father, that he was promised in Psalm chapter 2. Now, now I'm not completely sure how that works out. There's a lot of theories about what that looks like. But my, my theory on this, my, my thought process on this is, is that this is pointing us to, to something that, that while the present situation, where this church is at right now, there's suffering, there's tribulation, there's persecution, there's subjugation. While they're experiencing that right now, for those who endure, for, for those who remain faithful, for those who continue to do the work that Jesus has set before them, to live the mission that Jesus has given them, to go and make disciples, to those people there will be exaltation, there will be authority. You see, what we're seeing here is that, that in the end, Jesus, he is going to be victorious over all of this, and he's promising that his people, his followers, are going to be right there with him in victory. It's a promise of a complete reversal of fortunes. Everything that's bad, everything that's wrong right now is going to be set right. He's giving them a goal to look forward to. But more than that, this is where it gets, like, seriously, this is good. I want you to see the ultimate prize. Jesus promises us the ultimate prize in verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. This promise is clear. This promise is the best promise of all. You see, at the end of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is standing there, and Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, and the you there, it's John, about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. But here's, here it is right here. The bright morning star. Do you see it? Do you see it right there? It's Jesus. That's the promise. The promise is that you get Jesus. For the one who endures to the end, for the one who promises, who, who, who keeps the promise, the, the promise that, that, that if they remain faithful, if they endure, if they keep going on, the one who conquers gets Jesus. That's a promise I can get excited about. I Listen, I leave that over there. First sermon I ever shared with you guys. What did I say? God is is the gospel. That's the core of my theology. That's the core of the good news of Jesus. That, that Jesus came and lived a life we couldn't live. That he died the death we deserve to die so that we get God himself. And that's what we're seeing right here. At the end of this letter, we're being promised that we get Jesus. The promise is eternity with Christ. The, the promise is eternity reconciled to our Creator. Because while our sin has earned God's wrath, Jesus paid the price for that sin. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death that I deserve to die. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, he rose in victory over sin and death so that if you will repent of your sin and accept his grace, his righteousness, God no longer sees you as a filthy sinner. You're no longer under the wrath that's promised in the beginning of this letter. But he sees you as his beloved son. He sees you like he sees Jesus perfect, blameless, holy, and righteous. Am I the only one excited about this? Like, I know I'm fired up because we're seeing this in every single letter. Every single letter promises us the gospel. 
You're adopted by him as his son or daughter. You get the bright morning star. You get eternity with Jesus. (laughs) That's a promise. That's something I can cling to. When it gets hard, when I'm, when I'm tempted to give in to this compromise, when I'm tempted to say, you know what, it's, it's really not that big a deal. I get Jesus. I get Jesus. So I don't compromise. I don't give in to tolerance. Jesus closes the letter. And he closes it with the admonition that we've seen in every single one of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we've talked about this fact, we've recognized that this is a plea from Christ to hear what he's saying. That, that this is telling us that, that, that the language here reminds us that while this letter was written to the Thyatira church in 95 AD, it's also written to the Point Church in Alberta, to First Baptist Church in Alberta in 2020 AD. Churches in that letter or in that statement there, it's intentionally plural. It's intentionally plural. He's saying to all the churches, to everyone who has ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. Take it on board. So as we've been reading this letter, I hope you're seeing that that this is for us. And as we've been reading it, we need to hear what Jesus is saying. We need to remember, drift can happen to anyone. It's not just some people who drift. It can happen to anyone. I have to be on guard. As your pastor, I have to be on guard. I have to watch out. I have to guard myself. I'm susceptible to drift. And so are you. And we need to remember the consequences of sin It is no light thing to violate the will of the sovereign God of creation. We need to remember the consequences of sin. And when we do remember the consequences of sin, and we remember, hey, I belong to Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. We need to do what followers of Jesus do. We need to repent of our sin. And then we need to live in the freedom of Jesus. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we fall down and we think there's no getting up anymore. How many of you are parents? When our kids were learning to walk, you know, they're crawling and they start pulling themselves up. And then they, they, they take that first step. And then another. And then they fall flat on their face. Do any of us say to them, what's wrong with you? Why did you fall down? You're never going to walk. Do we do that? No. We say, you were doing it. You were walking. I'm so proud of you. Get up. Let's do it again. Jesus is saying Jesus is saying you were walking get back up and do it again there is freedom available in Jesus so let's live in that freedom can we pray Lord God you are so incredibly good so good far better than we deserve far better than we ever could have hoped for 
Because even when we fall down on our face, you're calling us back. You're reeling us back in and you're saying, no, 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 no. I love you. I love you. Repent. Come back. Follow me. You are so good to us that 2,000 years ago you wrote a letter to a little small town church. But you knew that that was also a letter for another little small town church. God, you're good to us. And we praise you that you're good to us.